The dark and macabre have intrigued us for years, but are there bewitching powers waning? The old greats such as Poe, Lovecraft, and Hitchcock have long since passed into the void. The masters of the 1970s like James Herbert and George Romero are gone. Stephen King and John Carpenter are in their twilight years. So where does that leave the current state of horror? The future is bright and author Thomas Gloom hopes to unveil this truth by discussing the genre's past and present. Settle back, get comfortable, and remember to leave a light on as you enter into the gloom. When looking at the intersection between horror and mental health, we see quite the bumpy history. For years, horror played a huge role in stigmatizing various mental health conditions, often representing the people who struggled with them as being scary or psychotic. But in recent years, horror has made quite the about face and has become one of the genres that leads the way in breaking down barriers and presenting a more positive focus and telling sincere and honest stories concerning mental health issues and those who suffer with them. On today's episode of Into the Gloom podcast, I'll be interviewing my spooky friend and fellow horror author, Haley Newland. As the discussion carries on, I think it'll become quite clear why she's such a great person to be having this particular discussion with. So Haley, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Good, good. Excited to be here. Awesome. I am excited as well. And we will, we'll see how things go. I know the last time that we talked on Zoom, it was like a three and a half hour conversation. Um, so we'll, we'll try to keep this yeah. one a little bit shorter, <laughs> but you know, nerds will be nerds, right? Yeah, exactly. Got to nerd out. Yes. <laughs> so also going back to that first discussion we had, we, we talked a lot about mental health because you know I've I've read some of your work and you've read some of my work and we we realized yeah. that we had sort of a vibe going that mental health was such a vibe <laughs> such a vibe yeah because mental health <laughs> is a huge aspect of our writing um and and I think yeah. who we are as as people so when when you brought up the fact that you wanted to talk about this particular theme, this particular topic, I knew that, that you were the perfect person to have on. And I think that as we go through this interview that the listeners will feel the same way. And so as, as I did with Spencer, when he was on in episode one, I, I'm not going to, you know, give a, a, a rundown of all of your accomplishments and all of your writing. But as we go <laughs> through this process, it'll come through and it'll become apparent how awesome you are. Um, yeah. <laughs> but let me just, let me start off with this question. Um, right. and, and, and people that know you or people that follow you on Instagram, they're already going to know this answer. But for those that maybe don't know, let me ask you a question that I know is very close to your heart. And that yes. question is, who is your favorite horror actor? <laughs> I love this question. 
Okay, my favorite horror actor is none other than Mr. Vincent Price. I am so in love with Vincent Price. If you follow me, you know that I have been in about a four month long journey of getting my uh, Vincent Price portrait tattoo touched up. Um, Vincent Price was really my introduction into horror. And what I love about him is even in some really, really goofy, cheesy, comedic horror movies, he just brings such a presence with everything he does. There is that spooky presence. It's the voice. It's just the way he carries himself. I mean, he is a true embodiment of the horror genre. Yeah. Yeah. He, he definitely has an aura to him. Yes. Um, you know, when you think about classic horror, you think of, um, you know, the, the Lugosi's and, and, and the, the Lee's out yeah. there, but Price, that name is also, I mean, at this point it's synonymous with horror, right? Yeah. It's so crazy though. Like I have found so many people who don't, aren't familiar with Price um, or they're familiar with a little bit of Christopher Lee and they don't know that Price and Christopher Lee were such great friends and, you know, them and Peter Cushing are really the fathers of horror. Yeah. So for me growing up, I knew Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing from Star yes. Wars because I'm a Star Wars yes. <laughs> yes. And it wasn't until I was a little older and more mature that I started to realizing the, the, the fingerprints, the early fingerprints that they have in the horror genre. Yeah, I was watching, um, I think it's called The House That Bleeds. And it's it's really interesting because it's sort of like a horror anthology film. So it's like a bunch of short stories in a film. Um, and it has, Price isn't in that one, um, I don't believe. I think it's Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. But Peter Cushing had one and my boyfriend came in and he's like the Star Wars guy. <laughs> and I'm like, what are you talking about? And, you know, I've seen Star Wars. I'm a Star Wars fan, but I had never made that connection. I just like, it went right over my head. I'm like, oh, this dude's in trouble. He's sassing Darth Vader. You know, never, never put it together that that was Peter Cushing. And I, yeah, I don't know how I did that. It's like, I was in horror element and then I was in Star Wars nerd element and just didn't <laughs> put two and two together. Yeah. And I mean, Peter Cushing, he's, he's the only guy that I can think of who sassed Darth Vader to his face and wasn't killed immediately for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They should have brought Vincent Price and had him do it. <laughs> yeah. So Follow up and I love Vincent Price sassed Darth Vader. <laughs> yes. So I will, I will make an admission, and I've already shared this with you, but I have not seen a Vincent Price horror film. But after talking to you and, and listening to you nerd out so much about him on Instagram, I yes. now, on my Shutter watch list, I have The House on Haunted Hill. And I recently, I was out of town. And I watched a ton of movies off of Shudder, but I held off on that one because I want to watch it with my wife because I think she'd appreciate it. She appreciates yes. old movies too. So hopefully in the next yes. week or two, I will no longer be able to say that I've never seen a Vincent Price horror movie. Awesome. Awesome. My all-time favorite is uh, Diary of a Madman. And that's what my tattoo comes from. Um, it's just a really, really great look at you know kind of 
the things we do in fear, uh, the things we do because of fear and how fear itself kind of becomes a possessive entity. Wow. So, yeah. yeah. And you mentioned, you know, after, after you read my debut novel, The Window, you had talked about how there were some similarities there and even with the color green and whatnot. And yes. it, it's astounding to me that oh, I've never it, seen it was that. Amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. And, you know, I immediately, it was so funny because I immediately thought of, I think I told you, I thought the, um, the diary of a madman, the use of the color green, because in the diary of a madman, when Vincent Price is possessed by this entity called the Horla, he gets this like neon green, like twilight zone looking kind of glow on his face. And it's actually really interesting how they did it. You know, back in the day, they had this green light and then people were holding like two pieces of black paper to just give him the little, you know, the little uh, line across his face. So when I get my, my tattoo finished in September, that's what I'm going back and adding is the green glow around his eyes. Yeah. And even though I haven't seen that movie, that imagery of him and the green is iconic. And I'm definitely yes. familiar with it. Yeah. So you, you should add that to your watch list. <laughs> okay. So before we dive into the, the main topic here, let me ask a, a follow-up question. This was sent in by a, a, a follower on Instagram. And this question is, what was the first horror movie that you fell in love with? Ooh, that's such a good question. Um, I would honestly say that it would, it would probably have to be a Vincent Price movie. Um, my grandfather had this really old <laughs> television in, in his living room. And it was like this thing that sat on the floor, this massive box, and it was gold. And he would have it on these, you know, those, those channels that played MASH and, and all the old TV shows that old timers love. My grandfather's going to listen to this and be like old timers. <laughs> um, but in the afternoons after school, I would come home and they would play Vincent Price movies. And so I think the first one I truly fell in love with was House of Wax. And that's really interesting because I don't want to give it away. But Vincent Price, in a sense, is wearing a mask for a majority of the film. So you, you still get that Vincent Price presence, even without seeing full on Vincent Price throughout the entire film, which is just shows how amazing he is. Wow. Wow. All right. Well, I've... Um... I've got some more movies on my, on my to be watched list. <laughs> yeah, everybody tells me to watch the house of wax remake. And I, I can't do it because it wouldn't, it wouldn't be fair to the remake because there's no way I would, I, in my opinion, there's just no way I could love it with loving the original Vincent price house of wax so much. Wait, so you don't think that Paris Hilton is an A-list actress? You know, I, you know, I would have to say probably not. <laughs> I mean, I am all for women rooting on women, but uh, no, I would have to say no. <laughs> you know, there was a really great uh, supernatural, you know, CW supernatural show where um, they, they went to like a, a house of wax museum and they brought Paris Hilton in and she had a little cameo in the supernatural episode. So that was actually really cool. Wow. Okay. Okay. All right, so let's let's shift gears. We'll put this train directly on the rails here. 
and talk about horror, talk about mental health. And we're going to spend some time, I, I want to spend some time talking about your book, Take Your Turn, Teddy. But before we look deeper into that, let me ask you another question. Um, this one was also sent in from Instagram. This is from a fellow indie horror author as well. But the question is, what books or movies influenced you while you were writing, take your turn, Teddy? Okay, that's such a great question. Um, honestly, it was several, um, but I think the number one would be It from Stephen King. Um, and I, in my first book, Not Another Sarah Halls, I wrote a note from the author that was essentially an ode to Pennywise. Um, but I carried that into my second novel. And really the idea stemmed from this individualized horror, the reality that, you know, when we watch scary movies, some people will say, oh my gosh, that scene bothered me so much. And other people will be like, I laughed at that scene. Like that didn't bother me at all. And I realized it's not that this person can handle more terror than the other. It's, it's a different kind. You know, even being an identical twin, I'll watch a horror movie with my sister and we'll pick out different parts that scared us the most. And so it is a, is a prime example of that where Pennywise, how he taunts each of, each of the children is very specific to their trauma, to their insecurities. And it just became this huge idea to me that fear is so individualized and stems from you know, our mental health, our trauma, our experiences. And that really became the essence of how I wanted to make Teddy vulnerable to the shadow entity that I created. Mm. Wow. Yeah. And that's, that's so true. And that's, we were talking before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about Stephen King and the different novels that he's put out and how interesting it is, is that, you know, there are some people that hate certain novels that he put out they just can't enjoy them they don't think they're scary but then there will be yeah. other people that say that's the best one or that was the scariest one and yeah. same thing when you talk about horror movies there are so many different fears that different people have and I, I think that a lot of it is also based on life experience what we've experienced that certain things will hit us on a deeper level certain things will scare us more sure. deeply yeah. Um, than, than other things. And so when you start talking about the, the playground that is the horror genre, whether you're a director, whether you're a writer, there is just so much ground to cover. Yeah. Um, and, and that's why I think that when you have a book like It that covers so much ground, so many different phobias, so many different aspects of fear, also from a child's view and from an adult's view, yes. it, it hits on so many different levels and that's why people love it because there's something there for everyone. Exactly. Exactly. There's something there for everyone. Um, I also love it because as we have started to talk about mental health, we're really expanding our, not just our understanding of it, but more than kind of what we know to be mental health issues, mostly anxiety and depression. Well, now we're saying, okay, there's, you know, anxiety that stems from, you know, trauma, there is depression for some people that can be really manic. And we're also redefining what that means, because it used to be, you know, we thought of manic depression as someone who is very violent or angry when it could really just be, 
you know, totally on one moment and the next moment just, you know, in an intense, intense low. Yeah. Yeah. And what are, what are a couple movies that aided you as you were writing this book? I know one of them right off the top of my head because it's, it's very in your face and I love it. Um, but I, I want to hear from you. So before I get into like the fun, the fun element of it, um, I guess I'm kind of, I'm kind of twisting your answer. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> the Haunting of Hill House, the series directed by Mike Flanagan. Um, that was huge for me, huge when I was writing Take Your Turn, Teddy. And really what got me was you had these siblings that all went through the same, the same trauma, the same experience in Hill House. But then you had each of them having their own struggles with it afterward, especially um, Nellie, you know, one of the twins who is haunted by this bent neck lady, haunted by different versions of herself. And I tried to create that in, in Take Your Turn Teddy. Um, really that, that idea of kind of being haunted by parts of yourself. Wow. Um, yeah. And that's really um, unresolved trauma, especially. Yes. And we'll, we'll talk about that here shortly, um, how horror can actually aid in helping us face our fears, resolve some past trauma. But before we get there, tell me a little bit about how John Carpenter's Halloween um, made its way into Take Your Turn, Teddy. Yes, John Carpenter's Halloween is everywhere <laughs> and take your turn teddy i mean i believe i named the 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 coroner um the coroner's office was haddonfield so i kind of turned it into like a family last name or um and then i also have one of my main characters um officer strode who is named after laurie strode um i initially had an entire scene that kind of was a nod to um to Halloween to the hospital setting. And I, I was really excited to do that in the 1970s and it ended up not making it into the book. So I still have it on my computer and I'm trying to figure out how I could use it in, in book three, but John Carpenter's Halloween, when I started writing, take your turn, Teddy, and I decided I wanted it to be in the seventies it was because seventies horror is such a vibe. Seventies horror is so much fun. Um, and you got to see a lot of firsts, you know, in, in the fifties and sixties, horror was about crossing a line. You know, now we're talking about death in movies. Now we're talking about, um, murders and psychotic killers. So it was really just about getting over that line where here, here we are. And then in the seventies, it's like, now we get to live in this, you know, now we get to really deeply explore these topics and John Carpenter really, brought something incredible with Halloween. Um, Laurie Strode was one of my first introductions to the final girl trope and just her tenacity and her, her willingness to kind of give her life or not kind of to give her life to protect those children was just amazing to me. And the fact that we could have such close relation to something so evil, the way she did with Michael Myers kind of made me think of how the shadow always sits within us. So, you know, for, for Lori, her, her shadow or her evil was in the form of a family member. 
Um, for Teddy, the shadow, the evil, I give it this physical manifestation, but it really comes from within himself. The same thing with Strode. He's haunted by this ghost, but it's really the evil comes from in his own trauma. It's self-manifested. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, talking about, I, I know that with, with Grady Hendrick's most recent release, it, it just dropped. There's a lot of talk about Final Girls and the Final Girl trope yes. within horror. And yeah, Laurie Strode to me is the final girl. For sure. Um, yes, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> but there, you know, you've, you've got another character and take your turn, Teddy. And I don't want to spoil too much or say too much, but she is a, a strong female character, a strong female protagonist, but in a different way than you might expect. I mean, she's not like kicking doors down and just punching dudes in the face or anything. But to me, for, for fans of Stephen King, for fans of Thomas Harris, I, I see this character that you've created as almost a mixture of Clarice Starling and yes. Holly Gibney. Yes, yes. And Holly, so The Outsider was also, um, The Outsider by Stephen King was also a huge part of my writing process for Take Your Turn, Teddy. Um, I love this idea of is there something supernatural here? Is this purely, you know, human evil? And, you know, also can human evil exist like at the same level of something that seems supernatural? So I love that struggle in The Outsider. Um, and that was kind of something that Strode kind of works through as he's, you know, learning about the shadow um, and Teddy just, you know, Teddy befriends it in his vulnerability. But Finch, I also named her after a kick-ass female character. Uh, her, I named her Finch after Scout from um, To Kill a Mockingbird. So the Finch family. So um, she, I, it was so important to me, especially in the 70s. In the 70s, it's, it's too easy to write an all-male cast. Um, so I, I really wanted to make sure that I, I was showing this is also when women were getting involved in law enforcement. And I started to get that idea when researching Ted Bundy, because it was amazing hearing some women talk about their fathers, their grandfathers, whatever, being police officers and coming home, being very worried for them, upset because you had this new era of the son of Sam, Ted Bundy, the Manson killings. And I thought it was so powerful to hear women say women were being targeted. Women have always been targeted. And that's why I got into law enforcement. You know, it was to give, give a female voice when so many of the victims were female. And so I just thought that was amazing. So I wanted to really put that in Finch's character. And what I also think is so strong about her character is her willingness to be emotional. You know, she is very like, kind of like reserved uh, when she's talking to people, but it's actually, I think her emotion that really drives the investigation, you know? And so often we say, don't be emotional or calm down. And I think I told you, and we had that three hour conversation. I hate when people say that because calm is still an emotion. You're still asking for an emotion. So an emotion belongs in horror. Emotion belongs in investigative processes. You know, you can say 
it doesn't, there's a professionalism, but anything done well is done with emotion. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. 100%. Sorry, that was a tangent. (laughs) Do what? That was a tangent. (laughs) No, no, that was good. That was good. That was, that's passion. And and we need that. Um, Especially when you talk about horror, which is so, uh, it's a genre focused on emotions. Yeah. Um, it, it, it really is. Oh, okay. 100%. So not just fear either. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not just fear. I mean, not fear at all. All right. So I want to talk about your book. Okay. Um, take your turn, Teddy. Okay. And what I'd like to do is I have collected a few choice quotes that I oh, feel okay. will help lead and guide us to talk a a little bit more in the specifics of mental health and horror and also for the listeners to get to know you a little bit better those that do know you they know that you were very open about your own mental health experiences um and and how much you put that into your writing but for anybody that isn't aware let me let me read two quotes now these these quotes are from the first part of the book and they are centered around Teddy, who is a young boy, and what he's going through. So let me, let me just read these two quotes. Teddy threw his fists at it without a clear understanding of where all this anger came from. There was so much he still didn't understand. And then another quote. Teddy was surer each day that George Jetson wasn't 100% the husband and father he was on screen. He wondered if any adults on TV were, or did all adults have a mean streak like his father or carry a ton of hurt like his mother? So for me, um, these particular quotes, they, they're so real, but also yeah. heartbreaking. Yeah. And the book, it shows the real time unraveling of childhood innocence and yeah. havoc that it can wreak on a young mind. Yeah. So my question for you, Haley, is how much of this played a role in your own experience? Yeah. Um, and I think I told you on our first chat that I have so willingly opened myself up to readers because I have found so much freedom in allowing myself to mourn my experiences. So almost everything you read and take your turn, Teddy, the trauma, it's heavy. Um, but yes, it does come from my own life. Um, I would say it is, it is fair to say I had a traumatic childhood. I'm still navigating that. And what I started to do was I shut down as a kid. I buried myself in anything that would distract me. Um, my, my parents divorced when I was young. My mother remarried a couple of times. My father remarried as well. Um, my relationship with my parents was, was hard. And as a kid, you just believe that, you know, these people that look like you, that know how to do things that you don't, that have protected you in, in so many circumstances, we believe them to be these, it sounds so cliche, but these superheroes, you know, and a crushing weight is to see them flawed. You know, Teddy's dad is a, is a heavy drinker and he comes home angry. 
Teddy's mother at some points is, you know, a little bit reserved or a little bit um, maybe even submissive. We don't get to see a ton of her being submissive, but we know it's been there in the past. And, you know, she's trapped between this. What do I do? This is my this is my son. This is my family. And that was so much of what I saw with my mother when she was in some very abusive relationships. It was, do we choose like financial stability versus, you know, like when we come home at night, there's no, there's no yelling, there's no arguing. And it was so hard for me because I realized when I was seeing these, these men, these people that my mother was with out and about, and they were very smiley and they would talk about us and how much they love being with us when we would go home at night. And that wasn't the reality, at least not a hundred percent of the time. And so I remember for the first time I started questioning families that I read about and saw on TV. And I realized there's so much more there, you know, we get to see only a fraction of them, but we see these, these fractions that are all positive, all perfect. And then when we find that that's not our reality, it's devastating. You think there's something wrong with you um, or you think it's something to conceal. And that's exactly what I did for, I would say the first 21 years of my life, everything was hide it away, you know, confinement. And it was so isolating. And it got to the point where I was very reactive to things. I would get upset very easily, never violent, but, you know, just that anxious on edge feeling, or I'd get really sad or somebody would say something and I couldn't let it go. And so I finally got into, got into therapy and I started to, my therapist, one of the first things she gave me was, I want you to look at young you as though it's not you, as if it was a different person. And she said, how would you feel for that child? And I remember I just lost it and I sobbed and I said, I would feel so sorry for this kid who felt alone, who felt that the only way through was to begin to trust isolation, to trust the notion that you are alone. And that I instilled that exact struggle in Teddy was kind of this, you know, it was like an avalanche of everything he knew that just crumbled. And instead he, he hung on to what he thought was reality and he trusted that as all bad. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's a lot to unpack. And I, I want to encourage our listeners to read this book because as you were telling your story, I was just remembering so vividly all of these points, especially in part one of the book, because yeah. in part one of this book, it's so real and it's so focused on Teddy and what is going on around him and how it's affecting him. And I just found myself constantly wanting to just grab him and hug him and tell him yeah. it's going to be okay. It gets better. Um, help him yeah. to understand some of the things and what, what I realized too is that as Teddy was going through those things, he didn't really have an outlet. He was worried about talking to his mom because he didn't want to upset her. His dad wasn't yeah. around. He couldn't talk to him. He'd made a new friend, but you know, you don't really want to unload all of this on, on a new friend. And, yeah. and he eventually, he finds an outlet. Um, and, and you're going to have to read it to find out more about that. But for me, it's just 
something that you said a minute ago, you said, I finally, I finally got help. You know, you went and, yeah. and, and you found a therapist and I'm, I'm one of the first people to, you know, to, to preach the gospel of going to therapy. Uh, it yes. needs to be normalized. I think everybody can benefit from having somebody to talk to, especially someone who has a, a background, is a professional in that environment, um, because we're all carrying baggage. We've all got stuff buried that we might not even know is there. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's powerful. And, and a lot of the times I think that the, the anxiety, the depression, the different mental health aspects that we, we struggle with, they're exacerbated by yeah. our feeling alone, feeling like we yeah. have no one to talk to. Um, yeah. and, and for, for writers, at least if they feel lonely, a lot of the times they have an outlet, they can write. Um, but for people that don't write, that don't journal, it's even worse. And so, you know, once again, we're, we're talking about horror and mental health, but I'm just going to say to anybody listening to this, if you feel alone, if you feel you have no one to talk to, find a therapist, find a psychologist, yeah. find somebody that you can talk to about these things, because it will, it'll hurt in the beginning. It'll be painful to rehash and bring up some of this stuff, but eventually you can find some hope. You can find some healing through that. Yeah, absolutely. What really pushed me to therapy was, and I feel so many people do this. I think so many people hear therapy and the next question is, do I really need that? Hmm. I kept asking myself, like, was I, what's the right word? Was I struggling enough to, to need therapy? Was I deserving of therapy? And then I thought like, you know, I had this idea, like you're being too sensitive, you're being emotional. And then I, my therapist kind of made me realize like, that's not actually your voice. Like your voice is not saying Haley is too emotional. And she said, because what would you say if someone said Haley is too emotional and you know me, I'd be like, piss off. <laughs> like, you know, you, I mean, you know how I am. Yeah. And so what really pushed it was when I was writing one of the early scenes in take your turn, Teddy, one of the particular really traumatic scenes. I wrote it and my editor actually sent me a text. My editor's name is Clayton. He's helped me on all three books. He's amazing. He actually sent me a text and he said, I'm going to go through and add my comments um, as I normally do things like that. And he said, but I have to tell you that scene was so heartbreaking, so heavy. And he said, there is no way even the best of writer could have just pulled this out of nowhere. And he said, it seems very real. And so I believe you experienced it. And for that, I'm sorry. And I remember I read that message and I seriously asked myself, was that real? Was that real? And I realized that is such a huge part of horror is, is that my reality? Mm. And that it seems like this really profound. I mean, it was this hugely profound moment in my life where I realized, holy shit, I have been through, I've been through some stuff. And I think when I tried to conceal it to, you know, be normal, whatever that means, right. With, with other people to try to suppress it. Um, I think I did a good job. I think I, I buried it away and I was like stomping on its grave. And, uh, and then it was like, he said that and it was like, you know, I always imagine like the zombie hand of my trauma is like, Oh, gotcha. Gotcha again. <laughs> so it sounds really heavy, but 
that changed my life. It really did. It was the first time that I kind of had to turn around and look at my trauma and not just hide from it, but kind of shake its hand and say, you're an asshole, but let's get to know each other. Yeah. Yeah. It's like what Spencer Hamilton mentioned in episode one, the, the, the thing that all authors are hearing over and over is write what you know. And we do yeah. that, but sometimes we don't even know what we know. We're writing exactly. it out. It's coming from an experience that maybe we've buried, that we've forgotten about, that we've locked away. And I'd like to transition from that and read another quote because I feel like yeah. you you captured this perfectly when when this voice that isn't really our voice, but when that voice is coming out and telling us, you know, that you're you, you don't need any help, keep this to yourself, people won't believe yeah. you, people think you're crazy, whatever the thing might be. Um, this comes from later in the book and focusing on the character of Strode, but the quote is this: that's how Strode's mind worked, even on his good days. The stains of trauma entombed him. And, you know, like I mentioned earlier, this this sense of actually, I can't remember if we're recording or it was pre-recording, but I know I mentioned something about feeling claustrophobic, (laughs) feeling closed (laughs) in, caged in. And you you perfectly captured that they're feeling entombed by that past trauma. How do we get out of it? Yeah. So I think, like I said, the only way I wrote a little bit about this in, in my note from the author with not another Sarah Halls, and it goes back to my love of it, you know, for a while, it was this creepy ass clown that we hide from, you know, it was these, these scary conjurings that we run from, but in the end that only gave momentary relief. It wasn't, you know, not prolonged closure. And so the older I got, I started to think of my life like as if I was walking around with Pennywise. And whenever I had some trauma coming up, I could just picture like Pennywise, like dancing, like, ha, gotcha. And, uh, and so instead of running, it was like, I turned around and I wanted to look it in the face and say, you know, why are you here? Who are you? And with that, then I learned how to beat it. And, or, I mean, you know what I mean? Like it never, even Pennywise, he hangs out a few years, you know, he comes back, he comes back, but it was more than momentary relief. It was like, for once I had the upper hand. So I still had like the ghost following me, but I knew what to do with it. And that's really what it comes down to. And it, you know, each of the kids has their own way in the end of standing up to Pennywise. And so I think the answer is, in horror, we're taught to run, you know, running saves your life. That's, that's the huge final girl trope, you know, the girl who ran and the girl who, but what I love is it's the girls who face the monsters. It's the Lori Strodes who don't just hide in the closet, but hide and are fastening a, a, a hanger wire to jam Michael Myers in the eye. And, and since then, you know, when they're carrying her away to the hospital, she wants to know more. She's afraid, but she's not just, okay, I'm I'm safe. Like this is fine. She wants to know more. And I realized that this same sort of investigative lens that I I do when I'm researching for books and writing books, it was time to turn the light onto myself and specifically my trauma and know it and name it. And that's what allowed me to mourn it. Mm. Wow. 
And mourning, yeah, I, mourning is so freeing. It really is allowing myself to mourn, mourn that childhood that I don't feel that I had, um, mourn that little girl who felt very stuck. And for years, you know, felt she had to wear a mask and hide what was going on in her life and hide that, hide her shaking hands. I remember so much in high school, um, putting my hands like under my desk or pretending I was fidgeting with like a, a tear in my jeans. And it was because my hands were so shaky all the time because I was just so anxious all the time. Wow. Yeah. And I, I fear that a lot of people don't realize that grieving is part of the healing process. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's something we avoid. But like I said, I allowing myself to mourn was the best thing I did. So I actually, for once I spent time with the events that happened and I am not going to say it was easy. Um, after I wrote the first part of take your turn, Teddy part one, um, I was probably at one of the lowest points I've ever been in my life. And it was just because uh, reliving so much of that was, was very, very difficult. And then coming to terms with I didn't just write this in Teddy, Teddy, you know, this was from me. And in the end, you know, Teddy becomes so, so isolated and that's how I felt. And so I had to take the time to say, this wasn't just a fictional character. This was young Haley. And I had to give that, that young little girl inside of me who has been trying to get attention, you know, I had to give her that. And so I took a a huge step back from Take Your Turn Teddy after I wrote part one. And honestly, that explains the shift between part one and part two, which a lot of critics do not care for. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's, I can see how it's polarizing um, because it is a difference. And, And without going into detail or any spoilers, the ending too, I know is polarizing. But, you know, we've talked about this before. I loved it. But it's because I think that maybe for people that haven't processed their own trauma, maybe for people that haven't faced their own demons and and haven't been honest with themselves about their own mental health struggles, they don't fully, uh, they, they don't clearly see what you have done with that ending. But for me, I saw it instantly and I thought it was perfectly done and the psychology behind it is so powerful, it's so strong, and it's so realistic. So I related with it. And so I'd, I'd be interesting to know maybe people that didn't like the ending, how they might feel coming back and reading it uh, a few years later. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, you know, it's, I, you, go ahead. It's without giving too much away. It's really like there are so many different parts of myself mentally that exist in Take Your Turn Teddy. And throughout the book, it's basically like they're all clawing to get to the forefront. Mm -hmm. And so as the author, I had to decide, what do I want? What do I want readers to leave with? You know, this, this book is heartbreaking. It's heavy, but what is the outcome of all of these, you know, parts of myself just digging away at each other, racing to the finish line? What would that look like? And I have to tell you that ending that was hard. That was hard to write. Like I, I don't just mean creatively, I mean, emotionally 
I wrote it. I was like, is this right? I wrote an alternative ending and my editor was like, what the hell are you doing? Like, no, you, you know what you want to do. And I'm like, oh, people are going to be so pissed. And he's like, yeah, they probably will. But I did it. I did. You know, you have to do that sometimes. Yep. Sometimes it's needed. You know, I, I initially, the, the ending that I'd first wrote for Voodoo Child was a very happy flowery ending, but it didn't sit well. It didn't seem natural. It seemed forced. And so I had to go back and change it and create an open-ended conclusion, which I personally love in horror. One of my favorite endings is Pet Cemetery. It's heartbreaking. It's tragic. But it's that open-ended conclusion, and it allows you, as the reader, it's just like, well, now you got to sit with this. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. And then I, I actually love the books that make you, you finish it, you feel that just a weight on you that makes you say, what now? And I love that because that's such a great part of horror is the books that are like that. They make you self-reflect. I've always said horror prompts self-reflection. Horror becomes so introspective. You know, you get to look at this monster and you say, why am I afraid? Or what would this monster look like for me? And I wanted people to see that with the shadow. You know, the shadow was very manipulative with how it befriended Teddy. And it had a very clear path of how it preyed on Teddy. So it became really introspective because I had to ask, okay, if it was young Haley, what would, this was after I started to piece together, okay, Haley and Teddy have a lot in common, which I didn't initially realize. Uh, I had to say, okay, what would make Teddy vulnerable to the shadow? And I kind of did that with each of the characters. You get to see this vulnerability. And I, I hoped that it made readers kind of wonder what would the shadow prey on for me? Because the shadow lives in all of us. You know, the shadow is part of all of us. So what would the shadow, what would it say to you? What would that, that voice dig at for you? Yeah. And those, those open-ended conclusions, or um, I guess you could, you could say even tragic conclusions that sometimes happen yeah. in, in horror yeah. books when they sit heavy with us, when we still feel that feeling in our chest or in the pit of our stomach, you know, hopefully it leads us to then ask the question, why am I still feeling this way? And like you said, it can lead to some introspection. And I, I know that you and I agree in terms of our writing that we don't shy away from from trauma, from right. personal demons, from mental health issues, because it's it's our hope, it's our wish, it's our desire that our readers would be able to face some of those demons in a relatively safe environment, the environment of fiction, yeah. and then take what they've learned, take what they've experienced and bring it into their real life so that they can conquer their real life demons and understand themselves a little yeah. bit better and find healing, find hope, find comfort. And that might seem strange to some yeah. people hearing those words attached and associated with horror, but it's the truth, at, at least for you and I, and for many uh, other authors that we know, yeah. that's the truth. We're not all just, you know, um, wild sadistic maniacs that love to be scared just because yeah. our, our we like our heart rate to grow up. No, there's something deeper. There's something more, more human and heartfelt at the core of this. 
Yeah. And I think, I think the reason horror is the perfect field to play this, this sort of, you know, self-exploration is because, is because when we are afraid, that is when we are the most reactive. So I told you that I love being put on the spot. And I think that comes from being a horror creator. And I love horror is so honest because it's, you don't get all of this thinking sometimes you have to react and what you are willing to pull up or what you do pull forward is, is so heavy is so, you know, mind blowing. Think of Clarice clearly kind of afraid of being manipulated. Clarice Starling from Silence of the Lambs, clearly um, being afraid of being manipulated by um, Dr. Lecter. She pulls up this very traumatic memory of, of living on a farm and, you know, after her parents die and, you know, trying to save this, this lamb, but it was so heavy and she gets in trouble and, you know, the lamb dies and she pulls that up because she is reacting out of, out of fear. You know, she is in this constant moves and counter moves that is exists in horror, trying to keep the upper hand with this very fearsome person at the other side. So it doesn't always have to be Michael Myers with a knife chasing you to be that, that horror that can really bring up that, that introspection that we got from Clary Starling. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and sometimes, sometimes the horror you, you kept mentioning Pennywise, sometimes the horror is just a, a big scary clown and there is there's a clown scene in Take Your Turn Teddy that is yes. terrifying. And you know, you know, as I as I think about that and as I read that, I was left, you know, thinking, dear God, Haley Newland, what have you done here? What have <laughs> you done? That's such here? a good compliment. <laughs> um, That's such a compliment. But you know, with 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 all of the, the the horror, with all of the the trauma and the fear and the sadness and the grief that is in this book, there's there's also light at the end of the tunnel. There are glimpses of hope. So I'd like to read two quotes that come from closer to the end of the book. And once again, okay. these quotes don't necessarily go together, but they're close. They're they're on the okay. same page. Cool. Yeah. Um. So the first one is, you showed me that sometimes our lowest moments, our worst tragedies are simply stepping off points to something better. And then the second quote is, thank you, Jackie, for showing this man that in all the bad, there's always good. We just have to be willing to find it. Now, that is a struggle for so many people because essentially what you've written here is you're, you're asking people to change their perspective, to change their focus, and to be willing to ask the question of, of I know something terrible has happened to me or happened in this instance, but what good could come from it? What good is there? Or maybe how could this bad thing be used for good? in the future. And, and for me, as we've been talking and as I've gotten to know you, I realized that your personal trauma, the trauma from your childhood and onwards yeah. 
it gave birth to this book, which I believe is yeah. a good thing. Yeah, um, and it so was- how, I, just, just go off on that. I don't even yeah. need to ask a question here. Just, what are your thoughts? So, I mean, absolutely, absolutely. And I, I don't believe we have to experience trauma to, to be tough, to be, you know, fierce or things like that. I do believe, you know, it's, it's a choice. Um, but it's certainly a choice with when you're carrying that baggage too, carrying that trauma. And, you know, that, that line that I wrote there about, we just have to be willing to find it. When I was a kid and I was living through a lot of trauma, I found comfort in, in books and baseball as Teddy does, um, which actually allowed me to weave in the clown very naturally because Hank Aaron, um, Hammer and Hank becomes such an icon in this book. And then it turns out that Hank Aaron played for um, the clowns. And so I got to naturally weave in a clown. But one of my, my kind of my safe havens or my sanctuary um, as I like to call it, was Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events. And what I loved about that was these three kids, these three siblings went through so much trauma, the death of their family, um, you know, a murderous uh, and just really sadistic uh, replacement guardian, I guess. And what they would do, even though they were living in this very abusive home, was at night, they would go up to their room and they build this little tent so they couldn't see their the rest of the house. They turn off all the lights and they'd sit in it. And uh, then they'd flip on like just a little light inside of it. So it was just this tent, this, these canvases, you know, around them, their wall, and then just each other. That was all they saw was each other. And um, my actually my first tattoo was the word sanctuary. Because Lemony Snicket says, you know, this was a sanctuary, um, you know, an oasis in a, in a desert or an island in a vast sea, like a sanctuary. And so I realized my sanctuary was with my sister. You know, my, I, I, in everything I went, I had my, my twin sister. And through that, I realized that I had this really unique ability to step out of the trauma and look at the good and to look at, I have all of these, these things, you know, sometimes I was struggling with my parents, but I had an identical twin sister who was my best friend and who was supporting me and who was going on, you know, the same journey through trauma and into coping with it as I was, you know, we, we've handled it differently. And of course we have our, our differences, even as identical twins, but it was my good. It was my good and the bad. Mm. Yeah. Perspective is so powerful. It's so powerful. And, you know, everybody's heard of the glass half full, half empty, you know, that, that sort of mindset, but there's power to that. There really is. And, and I think that sometimes just changing our perspective about things can be the catalyst that we need to yeah. sort of spark our moving forward, our healing from trauma, 
um, our getting better, our being open about things, whatever it might be. Um, sometimes it's just changing our, our perspective. And I, I really, I know that I do this in my own writing and I know that you do it in yours, but it's helpful too that we go into our writing, not with the mindset of just that this is helpful to us, but in the hopes that it can help others. And if more of us are doing that, using our art, using our own experiences, um, sharing those things, being open and honest in the hopes that others can get some help, can see some, some hope. um, I I think that's really powerful. And I know that when when I first picked up your book, um, and at this point, I didn't really know you. Uh, I'll, I'll say this on, on the podcast for people that don't know, but, you know, my, the very first um, indie author paperback that I ever got was yours, was Take Your Turn. And it was also the very first um, uh, book that I ever got that was actually inscribed Um, (laughs) by the author so that was really really cool to me and when I started reading you know I started from the beginning and so I started with the author note and as soon as I started reading that I realized wow okay this this is a human that I can relate to this is a book that I know that I'm going to love (laughs) Because you just, you lay out so much in that author note and you're so genuine and you're so honest. And that's what I strive to do in my own writing. I've been told throughout my whole life that that's one of my greatest characteristics. Why people like me is because I'm genuine and because I'm honest. Like what, what you see is what you get with me. I can second that. <laughs> and oh, thank you. And, and you just, you did the same thing right there to start your book. And so I want to read, this is the, the final quote that I want to read from, from your book, but this is from the author note. And okay. it's so good. It says, or I, I guess I should say you wrote or you said, <laughs> <laughs> in fact, the better I get, the more I come to understand that my depression, anxiety, and bipolar disorder will always be with me. The shadow lives in all of us, but I am far more equipped to fight it than I have ever been. And now, thanks to all my readers who have shared their stories with me, I know I'm not alone in the continuous fight for control in my life. And so I just wanna, I want to commend you for being so honest and putting that out there because you, you really, you hit the nail on the head. The more that we talk about these things, the more that we are open and honest with each other about these things, the more that we are going to empower other people to speak up and to speak out. And as we draw together and hear each other's stories and, and, and get the support from one another, we will realize that we all have the power within ourselves to fight against these shadows that we all face. Yeah, I think it's I think it's so equally important to realize that the shadow lives in all of us, but that that final girl tenacity lives in all of us too. Yes. And so I think it's so important to know that you're you know in whatever form it may be, which is why it was so important for me um when I first when I wrote my first draft of uh, your note my note from the author um, I didn't use the word bipolar. 
And it was because that was a new diagnosis. And that was heavy for me. That was hard. And, you know, we live in a society that we're trying to talk about mental health and we're talking about anxiety and we're talking about depression. Bipolar disorder is not really one that comes up very much and it's still very misunderstood. And for what I have found is that when I've started conversations with it, when I say bipolar, a lot of people think Kanye West. And Kanye West has clearly had some trouble, had some trouble in the media and things like that. Um, but there's so much going on with that man. And first, and I feel terrible for him, you know, just everything he goes through. But there's so much more depth to it. And if you notice in my books, even though in my note from the author, I lay it out bipolar anxiety, depression. In my books, I never explicitly tie any of those tags to the characters. And the reason why is because, you know, I am bipolar and so many people don't understand that that doesn't mean, you know, I am um, raging like Jack Torrance or anything like that. What it really means is I can be really happy and in such a great mood. And then in like a snap, I am, it's so low and I feel so much weight and it's heavy. And I mean, it can be like within a car ride, it can go that fast. And it's, it's hard because you're like, where, why, like what, what just happened. And I had to learn to accept that there isn't always a why, you know, there isn't always a, how did you get here? That's just, that's the shadow within me. And so instead of asking those questions, like I said before, I had to look my, my monster in the face and kind of pat it on the head and say, okay, I see you. Like you're here. I see you. Now can we get back to work? Can we get back to what we were doing? And so it was that, you know, looking at it and saying, okay, you're here with something triggering is something weighing on me and spending time with it rather than, you know, putting a pillow to the face, suffocating it, that I was really able to kind of start to come to terms with, with what I, what I'm going to live with for the rest of my life. And again, just that, that willingness to face it and recognize it, name it, really helped me move forward. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about how intimate this book is to you and your own experience. Yeah. Um, and, and you've talked about writing the, just the, the feelings and, and everything that comes along with some of these mental health struggles and you've mentioned anxiety you've mentioned depression you've mentioned bipolar um but i want to ask you a question and this is another um instagram uh question that came in but the question is awesome how do you write mental health issues that you haven't personally experienced or or you know or do you yeah so i think the the really straightforward answer is i don't And, um, you know, that's not, I don't believe that that's intentional, but that's just my, my way of always trying to do mental health discussion justice in, in horror novels. So I believe if I put my own unique experiences in my stories without labeling, you know, this is a a side effect of this, or this is a, whatever that might be, that's what allows readers to put their own spin on it, to say, I have experienced this, um, you know, with a medication for taking fiber, you know, for fibromyalgia or whatever it may be. It's like, 
we all have our own, here's exactly what it is, but it's like letting you connect with one another without all those labels. It's connecting through the experience rather than the terms. And so I try to instead write about experiences that I have always been through. Um, And I find that in being really descriptive with what the experiences, the shaking hands, the when Teddy's sitting in his room and he's reading his book, but then he hears his father come home and his heart starts racing and he's not even really sure why he feels so anxious. Um, But it's, you know, because he has these parents that are arguing and it's, he's afraid. Um, And so writing more about the experiences rather than explicitly saying, and my mental health and my brain processed it this way, instead by infusing different parts of my own mental health experience into different characters, it was almost as if they all got to be their own mental health journey when it was really just fragments of my own. Mm. Yeah. And we, we can definitely write a realistic fictional story without having it turn into like a medical journal. Right. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I just, I always, and you did such a brilliant job in uh, the window of really writing about that, that lingering kind of trauma and what I loved about the window is, you know, this, this question of belief. Do we believe there is a ghost? Do we believe this is a part of our past? Do we believe we are deserving of help? That is such an embodiment of horror, the question of belief. And it extends so much beyond, is this a haunted house? Is there really a ghost? Do I believe in ghosts? And your character, um, he really was struggling with this past and trying to piece together what was real, what was fiction. And I think that that is such a huge part of mental health is, you know, coming to terms with our past, coming to terms with um, maybe our diagnosis and things like that. And that is really your character's journey was coming to terms and grappling with that question of belief. Yeah, you know, I have found that sometimes the scariest and most oppressive haunted houses are the ones that we've built in our own minds. Exactly. Exactly. That's why I love psychological horror because it's like they're running through a house, but you can see them running through trauma. And that's why I love the haunting of Hill House was because they had this shared experience and they're in the same house, but everyone is running into different ghosts. And I thought that that was so brilliant. And it was actually that series that made me realize you know, for a while, my, my identical twin sister and I had this kind of disconnect um, when we were starting to really go into work in therapy, you know, therapy is hard and things like that. But when I realized you can live in the same house, you could experience the same trauma and run into different ghosts. It made us understand each other in a way we never really had before. And we truly became allies in our own mental health journeys. Wow. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And the I, I love how you sort of brought up the the intersection as well between mental health and horror and psychological horror. And, you, and, and a lot of the times they, you know, they just fit together so snugly. And I just a few days ago, I just finished yeah. The Bell Chime by Mona Cavani, and she is going to be coming on in a future yes. episode to specifically talk about psychological awesome. So... That's yeah, amazing. we can all we can all look forward to that. Um, yes, I have that on my TV red list. <laughs> yes, definitely check it out. Definitely check it out. It's 
it's I don't want to say it's a fun ride because a lot of it isn't fun. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a thrilling it, ride, maybe. Yeah, thrilling. Yeah. Really, it was it was great, and it, it's another one that sits with you. Yeah. Uh, when, when you're done, um, but I, I I like that in my horror. Yes, me too. Okay, so this is the the final Instagrammer question that yeah. came in. Awesome. And you know, I, I think that this is something that most authors are asked this question and the answer is always a little bit different, but I think that there's a little more weight to this question right now because you've just got done sort of exposing yourself and saying yeah. how personal your novel was, how much of yourself that you poured out into that. Yeah. So you spent all this time processing your own past trauma, processing your own life experience, writing it down, essentially, you know, creating a, a, a diary of sorts. Yeah. And then you're about to publish it and yes. put it out into the world. So let me ask you this. While you were writing and putting this stuff down, and then once you got to the point of releasing it, whether to advanced readers or to the public, how do you work through the self-doubt and stay motivated as you're going through those different processes? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, and if I'm being honest, there were solid points where self-doubt, you know, I was locked in an Iron Maiden of self-doubt. <laughs> I was locked in an Iron Maiden of this shit is heavy and there's no escaping it. And now I've unraveled it all. And then I actually, I, I was on a podcast right before I released it. Um, and we talked about gore in horror and I'm so sorry. I know some listeners, if you liked me so far, this might be <laughs> the breaking point, uh, the turnoff. Um, I am not a fan of the Saul franchise. Um, I do not like Saul. The, the gore to me is too much. And not saying that I'm like, I'm anti-gore, but I have this huge belief that gore should be like truth with tact. You know, if you, if you just put everything out on the table, all the gore, all the truth with no tact, everybody's just uncomfortable. So I had to remind myself there was a method to the madness. There was so much tact behind the truth. I was unraveling this truth, not only for myself, because for a long time, I didn't realize it was myself, but I was unraveling this truth to show people you have this shadow that lives within you. You can't do the classic horror, outrun the monster. And when does that really work anyway? Mm -hmm. um, when does, you know, that never really works anyway. And so it became this huge, giant metaphor of realizing that we all have, we all have that darkness, everybody, which means a, you are deserving of help. Um, no matter to what degree you feel that you need it, you're deserving of help. And B that every single person has a struggle. Every single person has this trauma, this, you know, nagging insecurity living within them, but every person also has a way to overcome it, a way to live with it in a way that they still get to be the best versions of themselves. So it was really that reminder that there was, there was purpose behind this. And honestly, my, my boyfriend of almost seven years, um, Jeremy, 
he was such a huge part of that process. I mean, it was really just sometimes a reminder of, you know, I couldn't just Hamilton style it just right. Like I was running out of time. I had to, I had to really reflect. And so he was kind of the one who was like, that was really heavy. Why don't you take some time before you go into the next chapter? Because at first I was just busting him out. And then I was, I felt like I was gutted. I felt like everything was on the table and, but I, there was nothing I could do. And so instead I had to go and I had to sit with it and kind of, you know, move it around and look at it and face it for a little bit. And then I got to be that much more tactful with what kind of truth I was laying down through the rest of the novel. Mm. It was yeah. a really long winded answer. <laughs> no, no, that's good. Um, you know, because it's, it's, it's all a process. And I, I think that, yeah. I think that for us as authors, every book, every story, it's going to look a little bit different in terms of what we're struggling yeah. with and how we're feeling. Oh, exactly. I honestly, I had somebody, I think it was my editor, Clayton. He told me he is so excited for this, my third book that I'm working on now, because my first book was like where I was kind of scratching the surface and exploring my mental health. And then my second book was really where I took the deep dive and, you know, was starting to kind of come out on top. And then the third book will really be where I have this new knowledge of how we should deal with trauma that kind of stop hiding it, stop running from it, but look it in the face. And obviously that's going to be pretty terrifying. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. I've, uh, I've been seeing all of your, your story updates on Instagram talking about all these serial killers and all this research you're doing. Yes, so, so much research. <laughs> I imagine <laughs> it is going to be quite the story. I hope so. <laughs> um, so before, before we move on away from Take Your Turn Teddy, um, listeners might not be aware that you're not completely done with Teddy. And a new format of this story is soon to be released. So can you tell us a bit about that? I definitely can. So um, honestly, I think, I think it comes from being a Vincent Price fan, loving the, the voices that come with really great horror. Um, I love hearing Vincent Price narrate things. I could listen to movies just with him talking. It's fantastic. So I kind of thought I would love to hear my story being told. You know, I want to hear this as an audiobook. So, with the help of uh, fellow horror author um, Brie, you know Brie, uh, Brie Morgan. She she's the author of Unboxed. Um, she is fantastic. So I, I kind of reached out to her because she's done a few audiobooks of her own, and I said I want to do an audiobook for Take Your Turn Teddy. So she helped me get it all set up and do auditions. The auditions were consistently, I don't want to be harsh. They were tough. They were very tough, especially in terms of giving the shadow the right voice, because I really wanted it to have this sort of Pennywise dynamic where readers are like, oh shit, that's bad. But to a child, they're a little bit more open to it. And so after kind of sharing that my, my run-in with auditions was tough and I couldn't find that right tone that gave the emotion behind, you know, this heavy story. 
a good friend of mine, uh, sent me a message on Instagram and it was just an audio clip and they read a line for the shadow in, in my novel, take your turn, Teddy. And funny enough, that narrator was Thomas gloom himself. So Thomas gloom is narrating, take the audiobook for take your turn, Teddy. And I am so excited. You have done it so much justice. I'm so excited too. And it's been so fun. And yeah, like I feel, I just, I know this book so well now because when you're going through and you're narrating, it's not just reading it straight through. There's a lot yeah. of reading ahead and you not, need to know what's coming and back and forth and getting the voices right and, and all of that. And so it was just, it's so cool how it's come full circle, right? Yeah. Like I mentioned earlier, like yours was the first, um, you know, inscribed by the author indie horror book that I ever got. And I just yeah. read it, you know, I, 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 I did a gloom review on my Instagram yes. for it and I loved the book. And now to have this opportunity to spend more time with it and to read through it again and to work with you and to work with Brie. And it's just been such a great experience. And th this will be my first um, audiobook. Now I do, I have plans. I'm going to narrate all of my own books and I, I'm, I'm really leaning into that sphere and want to narrate some books for others. Some other people have reached out and, and, and we're having some talks, but it's so cool to be able to, to do this first with take your turn, Teddy and uh, listeners, as time is going, going on, you're going to get some sneak peeks and we're going to start, you know, promoting this yes. and, and whatnot. So we're both, I know we're really excited about this and it's just, it's cool how this has all fell together. And also just as a side note, you mentioned Brie, she's also going to be coming on to the podcast and we're going to be discussing cult, cult horror and, yes, uh, that's totally your your vein. That is your vein of horror. Full yes, horror. <laughs> it is definitely my wheelhouse. And and I know she's so excited too. And we're going to be nerding out about the Wicker Man for sure. Um, yes, I remember. I just saw that recently for the first time. Yes, so yes. good, so good. Yeah. Um. So, you know this this audiobook. It's been so fun, and I'm really excited. And you know at at this point, by the time this episode is out, you know, every, everybody's listening to it, they will know that I am releasing bonus episodes in between. And so the bonus episode that will be coming out later on after this episode has gone live, it's actually going to be my reading for the audiobook of the author note. And wow. so I'm awesome. really excited about that. And, you know, we've already given them a little bit of a taste that that line that I read a little bit earlier. But I think that coupling this bonus episode with this specific episode and having it be your author note, it's just it's yeah. going to fit so well because you did such a good job once again of just covering a genuine honesty when it comes to mental health and horror. And so I, I hope you. that that people get as much out of it as I did. And as much as I know that you did writing that author. note. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, it was it was a tough one to write, but I feel like I get to look at my author notes from each of my books and really just see how much I've grown both as a writer and just, you know, in my own mental health journey. 
Yeah, yeah. And let me also mention this. We talked about it before we started recording, but just a heads up to everybody that in 2022, there is an upcoming movie coming out it, it, or a documentary. It's called Mental Health and Horror, a documentary. And it explores the positive impact and the cathartic comforts that the horror genre can have for fans living with mental illness. Um, so I, I think that that will also be, if, if you've enjoyed this episode, and we're not quite done yet, but if you've enjoyed this episode, definitely put that on your calendar. Be looking out for that documentary coming out next year. Yes, I'm so excited. That's amazing. Yeah, and it's just... It's the time in which we're living in, too. You know, we we talked earlier before we went live on the fact that, you know, this pandemic has been raging and, it, you know, it, it's just, it's been tough. It's been a tough over a year and a half now. Yeah. But back in September of 2020, this study came out from the University of Chicago and it suggested that if you are a horror fan, that you're probably coping better with the pandemic than the average person. That's um, crazy. Yeah. And in and, and this study, essentially, it showed that people who watch horror movies show fewer symptoms of psychological distress. And so once again, there is scientific study, there is psychology to back up a lot of what we've been talking about in terms yeah. of horror, whether it's movies, whether it is books, whether it's a play, you know, yeah. plugging <laughs> another plug for Brie. Um, yeah. It can aid us in combating our own demons and processing the past, but it can also equip us for the future horrors that we might face living in this world. Yeah. And I think the pandemic was um, so emotional for so many people. And we talked about how horror is so emotional. It goes through every kind of emotion that we felt, you know, anxiety, fear, dread, unease, you know, isolation, all of those feelings we felt horror fans have not only either written about, but, you know, experienced through characters, you know, through, had this really cathartic experience watching characters struggle through it or reading about characters going through it too. That's so true. And I, I mean, this is just one of the many reasons why we love the horror genre, right? Exactly. Yes. Beautiful and macabre all at the same time. Um, so yes. as much as it saddens me to do this, but I'm going to let go of Teddy's hand for now. And I want to ask yes. you another <laughs> question. And this, okay. th this should be a fun question for you. Okay. Okay. So up until this episode, everybody might not have known the fact that you're a twin and I realized. <laughs> do what? Identical twin. <laughs> Identical twin. And yeah. So I realized that there's already a bit of a twin trope that solidified within the horror genre. And so I'm not going to ask you about that. But what I will ask you is this If you, Haley, were to write about twins in one of your books, how would you approach it? 
Ooh, I, I actually love that question. Usually I'm a little, oh, the twin trope. Um, I, I just, I hate the, ooh, evil twin. Um, so what I've always felt there's a missed opportunity with how the horror genre looks at twins until Mike Flanagan's The Haunting of Hill House. So all of the siblings throughout Hill House have their different run-ins with ghosts, have their different little paranormal things. But the twins, they experience the worst of them. They experience the heaviest of them. And they they have that, that same, all this emotion that is embedded in horror, but then you're, you're linked in such a deep way that a lot of people will never understand to another person, to another person that has had these same experiences um, that has this mental connection with you. And so I talked so much about my sister and I going through this mental health journey, but seeing different ghosts kind of the same way, um, Nellie and Luke do in the haunting of Hill house. So I liked this idea of maybe putting two, you know, twin sisters in a haunted house, much like Hill house. And they actually get separated. Like they're lost in the house and they have to overcome and face all these different ghosts to try to find each other in the middle, to try to meet back to each other. So, you know, the haunted house is clearly the shared house of trauma that they've built in their own heads, but then they get to see a run in with how even for identical twins, we still process things differently. We still have um, different memories. We have some different experiences and some things will weigh really hard on me and my sister Hannah doesn't quite remember them and same thing, same, same go around. So I would really like to not only just show the really in-depth relationship of twins, but I would love to see that actually be used as a way to understand different kinds of mental health. And it'd be really kick-ass to have twin final girls. Mm, yes. So maybe Maybe we can look forward to that book four. You might have just planted a seed. And if I do, I'll definitely give a shout out, you know, into the gloom with Thomas Gloom. I, I decided book four. Yeah. My editor's probably lis- going to listen to this and just be scrolling notes. Okay. Book four. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> awesome. Okay. So you are going to be my second victim And I'm now going to take you into a place that I like to call the carpenter's shed. Nice. (laughs) It's no surprise. I'm a huge John Carpenter fan. He has been a huge inspiration to me and my love for horror and my love for cheesy, campy 80s horror, especially. Um, And, you know, I I realize he made movies in the 70s and the 90s and 2000s as well. But I just I feel like the 80s was was really, really strong for him. Um, But while you're here in the Carpenter Shed, I want to ask you, what is your favorite John Carpenter movie? Oh, Thomas, that's such a that's such a good question. And I mean, I obviously, you know, I'm a huge fan of early horror. So I immediately kind of go to things, you know, the thing. Um, But I think you're going to hate me. This might be really cliche. But, you know, Halloween was such a profound moment for me in horror. Because you have to think, I 
followed Vincent Price. Vincent, the first film I ever saw with Vincent Price came out in 1949. Like, holy shit. <laughs> so, you know, going through the, the 1949 into the 50s and 60s, and it was so much it was so, it was so based on atmosphere, you know, so there had to be this presence to convince the readers because we didn't have all this, this CGI, all this technology. So the presence and, and really the direction had to really suspend the audience's disbelief, really put them in that moment. And John Carpenter mastered that in Halloween. I just, I love kind of the nods that came to horror before, you know, we have the, um, I think you do have some of the campy, campy things, even in a seventies horror film, you know, you have the, the teenagers who should be babysitting, but are doing, you know, unmentionable things. And, uh, then you have like, just so many nods to, you know, the haunted house kind of setup. you know, you have this, um, this the trope of like the child killer and I just think he did such a good job with Halloween and with Laurie Strode's character you know I'm a huge Vincent Price fan but there are a lot of Vincent Price movies where the female characters are very disappointing you know it's the crying woman who just falls to the ground and crumbles and and when I, the first time I saw Halloween I was so worried they were going to do that with Laurie Schrode. You know, horror sometimes is is guilty of taking very capable people and then just taking all their capabilities away and leaving them on the, and I say people, they do this to women, um, on the ground screaming and, you know, waiting, waiting to be saved. And John Carpenter was my introduction to the final girl trope with Laurie Strode. So I'm sorry if it's really cliche, but I have to say Halloween. Hey, if if that's cliched, then I'm a living cliche because <laughs> not only is John Carpenter's Halloween my favorite movie that he directed, but it's my favorite horror movie. Hands really? Down. I love that horror movie. It was so transformative for me. And it's actually funny because it was not the first movie from the Halloween franchise that I saw. Oh, um, really? Where'd you start? once I saw it, it was just like, it was a game changer. It was a game changer. The first one I saw was um, uh, H2O. Um, okay. And But yeah, yeah. And, and in terms of the, you, you mentioned that there still was some, some cheesy campiness, even though it was the 70s and not the 80s. And I would just say totally. Um, and, I, and I liked that. I was here for it. Yeah. And, and, and for me, that carrying that along with Linda, just always totally, totally, totally. I love yes. that so much. Yes. And, and, and I think we've all known people like that as well. Um, yeah. But yeah, what you said about the, 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 the way that he shot that movie and, you know, even with the, in the credits, you don't see Michael Myers, it's the right. shape. And yeah. the shape is sort of in the background you see him here and there it's far yeah. away he's hiding behind you know a, a, a bush or he's standing behind a car or you just you see get like silhouettes yeah. yeah silhouette the chest down and yeah. so the the foreboding that that movie does is so beautiful and it just it slowly ratchets up and when you finally see him just dead on and just see that mask and that face, it's horrifying. But there's not yeah. a lot of gore either in that no. movie. No. And it's just, 
it's beautiful. And, and for me, you know, that's how I tend to do my writing as well. I know you're familiar with that with the window. Yeah. It slowly ratchets up as it goes. Yeah. And then once it hits, it goes really fast. Yeah. But yeah. You have to set the stage. The atmosphere is everything. Yes. Um, one more thing about Halloween. The I can't, I'm blanking on his name. The psychologist is one Mark of the Loomis. best things. Yes. Yes. One of the best things about Halloween for me. I just, I love his character, his dedication. Um, I, I just absolutely loved it. And that's such a horror trope too. If somebody sees the bad, tries to warn the others about the bad, they, you know, they don't believe them and then they suffer the consequence. Yep. Yep. And, so. and that's, that's a beautiful trope too, in terms of when you start talking about mental health and horror and in real life, there's, you know, yeah. a lot of the times somebody that is maybe having those mental health struggles, they're voicing what's going on and what's really happening. And people tend to not believe them. Yeah. Or they, they think, you know, it's, it's dramatic or, yep. you know, fabricated when, yeah, when it's not, not at all. Yep. Yep. I shot him six times. I shot him in the yeah. eye. I shot him six <laughs> this times. This is a human. <laughs> <laughs> I love it when he just like loses it. It's, it's yeah. brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So now I've let go of Teddy's hand. Allow me to take your hand and lead you from the carpenter shed into the king's corner. And Ooh, I like it. While you're here, let me ask you, what is your favorite Stephen King book and why? So it's, I, I'm so sorry, listeners, if this is redundant, but it's definitely it. It's 100% it. And again, it was the first time that I saw that horror could be very, or so incredibly purposeful. You know, of course, I had a lot of fun with horror, watching Vincent Price, watching some campy horror, but when I read it, there was so much intentionality behind every character, why they were vulnerable to Pennywise. And then this band of misfits coming together, that was so powerful for awkward 13-year-old Haley. I was like, yes, the Losers Club. And so it will, will I always say Pennywise has my heart. <laughs> Pennywise has my heart. It is forever my number one. Awesome. Awesome. And yeah, I mean, that's, that is so many people's answer for a reason, right? I mean, it's great. It's, yeah. it's my number two, my number one Ooh. King. I'm going to, I'm going to hold that back and, and wait for okay. somebody to say it. Cause somebody will say it. It's not like I'm, I'm in, in left field, but it is my number two for sure. Yeah. And I'm, I'm asked, I'm a little bit hesitant to reread it. I want to do it and I want to do it soon, but I'm kind of scared that it might jump ahead and become my favorite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I um so I always have it on my desk and for my the book I'm writing right now, um which I've titled The Nowhere Man, um I have been listening to the audiobook for it. Mm. So, that's been great. Um I I probably am a little bit in the left field for my number 2 because my number two is newer King, which has been heavily criticized. Um, it would be Dr. Sleep. Okay. Okay. I think it was, I mean, to take on that project, 
good God. That is you're you're being asked to follow up the like the best ghost story of all time. You know, that's what he was challenged with. And then to take I love it. this trauma and having to face it and facing it because you needed to help others that that was so powerful to me you know Danny lived with this trauma of not only this place but of an alcoholic abusive father and he ran from it for so long and then the way it always does you know for him it was in the form of Abra who's such a great character you know tapping on his shoulder I need your help and I think eventually for all of us that trauma is going to come back in whatever form it's going to tap on our shoulders. So that's why I love Dr. Sleep. Yeah. And honestly, that, that definitely fits the theme of, of yeah. this episode and what we're talking about. So that, that makes sense that that would be your number two. Um, also that reminds me something you said earlier, I couldn't speak up yet because we hadn't talked about the audio book, but I did, I read the outsider and I loved it, but I hadn't yeah. seen the show. And so you encouraged yes. me to watch the show to help with some of the, the characterization and the voices for the audiobook. And the show is so good. Yes. And it was so helpful for me too, in, in terms of narrating and getting in the characters' heads. Okay. Good, so good. Yeah. And Holly in that. <laughs> yes. Holly in the outsider. Yes. Yes. <laughs> All right. So before we leave the King's Corner, let me also ask you, what, what is your least favorite King book and why? Oh, Thomas, <laughs> my least favorite. Um, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about, you know, some of the King books we don't like, and that doesn't mean they're bad books. I mean, can you really say King does anything bad? I mean, sure, he could, but um, anyway, I would probably have to go with Rose Matter. And um, I appreciate everything it tried to do. You know, it followed, or it did. It followed this woman um, trying to leave a, you know, an abusive relationship, trying to find herself. But it had this supernatural buildup throughout the book um, that was so cool to, you know, add this, this other lens to, to her navigating her own trauma, you know, she has all these personal problems going on. And then there's this like supernatural issue that she's facing. And I love that. I love the build up to it. And then the ending, that part felt so rushed to me. It's like, we were waiting, we were waiting to get to step into this other kind of supernatural thing that she's exploring throughout the book and then it felt like okay you dip your toes in it book is over and so that that really bummed me out but I still loved a lot of Rose Matter um she describes her abusive husband as a raging bull and if you remember from Take Your Turn Teddy Teddy begins to have nightmares about an angry bull harming his mother and so that was inspired by Rose Matter. So when I say my least favorite, I feel like it's not like a harsh, like didn't finish, hate that book. It was like, I am usually very, very happy when I finish a King book. And that one, I, it left something to be desired for me. Yeah, I, I and I, I agree. Um, I, I think that 
Rose Matter tried to do something that he did with two other books, but it did a poorer job. And so I think that yes. if you if you really want to go into read a book with the trope of the the female protagonist that overcomes the abusive monster male, I think that you would be better off reading Gerald's Game or Dolores Claiborne. Yes, yes. I love Gerald's Game. And even though it's not the protagonist, The Shining is a great one too, but not the movie. Yeah, not, not the, the movie. You're going to look at it, not the movie. Um, I have a love-hate relationship relationship with The Shining movie. Yeah. And it's, it's mostly about Wendy yep. because King does such a great job of not creating the quote unquote, you know, useless woman, you know, that we, we put in horror. And that's exactly what Stanley Kubrick turned her into the screaming woman who is not running or who, I mean, there's like a single minute where she's just screaming at the camera and it's like, you got to think, you got to move, you got to do something. And that wasn't Wendy Torrance in the shining that in, in the book, that was not her character and I think, again, when I said earlier that horror for a long time was about crossing a line of now we get to talk about blood and death in movies, I think Kubrick suffered from the excitement of now we're over this line when he should have erased it <laughs> and said, okay, this is part of this traumatic story. When instead yeah. he's like, ooh, now I get to show blood and I get to show death. Because I've had so many people ask me who have only seen the film what is The Shining? Because Kubrick didn't didn't dedicate enough time to explaining the rules of the world, which is another reason why I love Dr. Sleep because Mike Flanagan, again, did such a great job of picking up what, what King did well and what Kubrick did well, and then also fixing where Kubrick kind of misstepped. Yeah, yeah. And also for me, you know, once I, uh, now that I know what I know, and we're talking about horror and mental health, it's hard for me to watch the movie the same, knowing what Kubrick, as the man in charge, as the power man on set, the director did to Shelley Duvall as a person. Oh, it was, yeah, it's disgusting. And what's so disgusting about that is I have come, come to people where I said, you know, Wendy Torrance is one of my favorite horror characters and they're like oh but Shelley Duvall is awful and I'm like is Shelley Duvall awful or you know did Kubrick not give her and to me it, it's the the lack of time on her character to me says a lot about him because he treated her so poorly and I think he didn't care enough about this character and he didn't let her show the emotion and the heart and he, he was yeah he was so abusive and the result not saying that that would have made it worth it, but the result, you know, wasn't even, didn't even do her character justice. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So final question. What are three horror books that deal with mental health that you personally would recommend to someone wanting to delve a bit deeper into some of what we've discussed here today? Okay. Um, not to be like, not to make a huge, like ass out of myself, but number one, it, it would be the window by Thomas Gloom, our very own Thomas Gloom. And I say that so genuinely because it is such a perfect depiction of horror that is not just jump scares, gore in your face. We really don't get gore in your novel until the end 
But because of the mental health struggle, there is that constant feeling of dread and unease. And to me, that's what makes a stellar horror novel is when you are getting this backstory, learning about this person, and you are still on edge as though you were walking through a haunted house waiting for a ghost to jump out. So I would 100% say that you mastered, you know, mental health and horror in the window. Thank you so much. And I, I'm so glad that you enjoyed it and that you picked up on on so much. But I mean, after reading Take Your Turn, Teddy, it makes sense, you know, and, and we're a vibe. We're such a vibe. <laughs> yeah. And and I'm sure this whole this whole interview has probably plugged your book um, plenty. But I will just say that, yeah, if anybody is interested in and in seeing horrors take on mental health, definitely pick this this one up. But you've got you've got two more. What are what are two more books? Okay, so we've already talked about it. So I it would be a great one, but I actually would say Carrie and Carrie by Stephen King. And I think Carrie is one that kind of it falls in the cracks a little bit. It's really famous, but I still think at the same time it's like the iconic images from the movie are famous, you know, like yeah. spilling the blood and things like that, where something I don't think that's explored or talked about enough in you know, relation to mental health is the abuse that comes from do, thinking you're doing the right things or quote, saving someone um, when you're being abusive. And we see that in Carrie's mother who believes that she has found like the, you know, this divinity in her religion and this is how you must live. And so she thinks that she is sparing her daughter, you know, um, from you know, the bad things in the world or whatever, when she is really the ultimate monster in Carrie's life. Yeah. And so I, I think that that's a really interesting, whether it be politics or religion, kind of the toll that people who believe that they are, are, so, you know, so right and they're wrong, you know, or they're, they think that everything they're doing is so right that they're willing to do a lot of wrong. Yeah. Religious fanaticism is is horrifying in its own right. And it's such an easy horror trope because you don't really have to dress it up too much. Uh, you just yeah. take, you just read, read the headlines and you've got a horror novel right there. Just run with it. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I'm using that in, in The Nowhere Man because it's I it actually it follows two characters in the 50s and in the 70s. So you have right on kind of the the. Uh, evangelicalism that kind of built uh the satanic panic and it really began in the 50s and then you have the 70s where you really see it amped up because of this new term the serial killer so i'm looking at kind of how otherwise everyday very logical people become so illogical because of fear and so they hang on to something that they think can save them and it becomes this super ultra religion that forgets to be kind and compassionate and to me that always makes me think of um Stephen King's The Mist a little bit too yeah yeah and and we see it in our reality you know living in America we see it with religion uh specifically within Christianity and we see it within you know politics um fear is a powerful yeah. motivator yes it is absolutely um, so the, I was two. So my third pick 
I'm struggling between two Shirley Jackson novels. Um, I, I believe we are both fans of We Have Always Lived in the Castle. Yes. Um, so yes, I am a huge fan of We Have Always Lived in the Castle. However, I love the, the instances of trauma um, that play into The Haunting of Hill House. Um, I love the, you know, because they're in a haunted house setting, they conjure their own ghosts. You know, there's this, this one point where um, Theodora and um, what's her name? Is it Eleanor? I'm, I'm yes. blanking, but they're, they're in a room together and they hear pounding on the door. And that really comes from, you know, it, it she believes it's her mother on the outside. And, you know, she had this very um, ill mother, this very controlling, manipulative mother. And it's interesting because we find that pe- everybody came to the house for different reasons. And it's very introspective when it all comes together for why everyone is there and everyone is really battling or running from their own demons. All right. Well, Y'all, y'all heard it. Y'all listeners go check out The Window by some weirdo named Thomas Gloom. Uh, <laughs> check out the, uh, the, the, the Haunting of Hill House. Yes. And I always get that confused because there's the House on Haunted Hill. There's a hound, ha- it. Yes. I actually watched House on Haunted Hill not knowing Christ was in it because I thought it was like the OG Haunting of Hill House. It's not. <laughs> and what was the second book that you named? Carrie. Carrie. Carrie, yes, Carrie. See, yes. look, it's fallen through the cracks of my yeah, mind already. Yeah, yeah it, it does for a lot of people. I had to reread it for my MFA program. And I was like, why aren't we still talking about Carrie? Uh, okay. Well, maybe maybe this episode of the podcast will, will help bring some renewed interest. Yes. Okay, so Haley Newland, where can people connect with you, buy your books, learn more about you? Yeah, so on HaleyNewlandAuthor.com, you can see every podcast I've been on, including this one. Uh, You can read some other works from me. You can also buy signed copies of my book. Um, But I am on every social media platform just as Haley Newland Author. All right. Well, Haley, it has been a joy. And I just want to thank you so much for stepping into the gloom. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun. We hope this episode haunts your nightmares. It's been an honor to scare you. Be sure to subscribe and also follow Into the Gloom podcast on Instagram for news on upcoming offerings. Until we meet again, remember to leave a light on. Ha 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 ha